Bibles, please, to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. The Baseball Hall of Fame is in Cooperstown, New York. The Football Hall of Fame is in Canton, Ohio. And the Bible, the Faith Hall of Fame, or Hall of Faith, as we like to call it, is found in Hebrews chapter 11. And rightfully so, as it contains a long list of saints who demonstrated great faith, even enduring faith, uh, even during intense trials in their life. So again, I invite you to turn to me if you have, uh, turn with me if you haven't been found it already to Hebrews chapter 11. And as you're doing so, on your way there, I want you to stop first and look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, because verses 38 and 39 actually give us the context for Hebrews chapter 11. Now you'll remember over the last several weeks that we've been looking at verses 26 all the way through 39, and that's our fourth warning passage, right? That's where we encountered our fourth warning passage. And the main point of that is, if you fall away from your profession of faith, uh, then you are going to be in dire consequences. Okay? That's really the fourth time he's said the same thing in different language, but really has said, listen, if you just made a profession of faith, if you're not all in, if you have just kind of straddling the world and got one foot in the world, one foot in your faith, that sooner or later, you're not going to be able to keep a foot in both, world and, in both worlds. And, and Christ is going to demand that you choose one. And so he's saying, listen, if Christ were to come back today and you think that you're in a safe position because you'll just wait and see what Jesus does and then you'll react, he says it's too late. It's too late. Matter of fact, he says, remember in verse 39, uh, he says, uh, we are... We are here. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction. So he is, he's trying to encourage them after he gave them such a stern, stern warning. Do you remember what that stern warning was, right? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You know, It's a terrible thing to, to fall into the hands of the living God. He's saying, listen, God himself will judge you for the rejection of his son. You're, you're treating his son, you're trampling him underfoot, you're treating his blood as no big deal, as common as anybody else's blood, and you're insulting the Holy Spirit who is inviting you into salvation, and you instead are choosing yourself. You are instead saying, no, nah, that's okay. Thanks for all that, God, but I think I'll get to heaven my own way. And God does not view that kindly. Matter of fact, we said of all the judgments that we see in the Bible, the strongest language are for those who, who make a profession of faith but are not all in. They have been, they've understood the gospel. They have, they have heard the gospel in its simplest form and understood it. They have been in a community of faith where they have seen the transforming power of the Holy Spirit work in the lives of those around them. Some of them have even participated in communion as if they truly believed in the, in the Christ atoning work on the cross and were celebrating that as a memorial with other believers. And then to get right to that point, right to that point, instead of going all in, they just stop right there and go, you know, if I go all in, then I'm going to have to give up, give up some things in my life I don't really want to give up. 
There are some things in my life I'd rather just kind of keep on doing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say I'm with Christ, but in my heart, I'm not really going to go all in. Because if I do, I know there are things that I'll have to give up. And guess what? I really like those things in my life. And I know I gain a lot through Christ, but that's way in the future. What about right now? Why can't I live the way I want to live right now? And then, hey, when it's close to dying time, guess what? Then I'll jump over to the Christian side. That way I get the best of both worlds. You see how, our, how deceptive our hearts are. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no. No, that's not how it works. Nice try. But you don't get to get to heaven in your own terms. You don't get to decide that this, hey, I'm going to go ahead and live my life, my own sinful life. And then when I think, you know, hopefully I've got some time here before I die that I get enough advance warning that I can then go over to the Christian side and make sure I secure my place in heaven. It's like that's not really how it works. And matter of fact, he says, the strictest judgment in all of Scripture are for those who profess to be of Christ, but are not. Severe warning. So look at verse 39. After all of that, the strictness of that warning, he says, but I know you're not of those people. You are those of the faith. Look at that again at verse 39. He says, he wants to turn that, he turn, turn into a positive exhortation here. He says, we are not of those who shrink back or fall back to destruction. He's like, he's talking to a congregation. He's saying, but I know, I've seen the things that you've done in the past. I've seen evidences of your faith. And so I know you're not of those. He's trying to encourage them. You're, you are of those who are all in. And if you're wavering a little bit, go all in now. That's what he's saying in verse 39. He's expressing hope for the congregation. Congregation, he said, we're not the ones who are going to fall away from the faith along the way. In, the, in other words, he's indicating that entire congregation, that he has a good and solid hope of their spiritual condition in Christ Jesus. You are not of those who are going to turn your backs on Jesus and fall away from him and thus be judged because you have faith. You have faith. You are of those who have faith. Notice that to the persevering or the preserving of the soul. Now that phrase right there, the preserving of the soul, he's going to spend this entire chapter illustrating for you what that looks like. He said, I'm going to show you person after person after person after person from the Old Testament. From the time before the flood, from the times of the patriarchs, from the time of Moses, from the time after the Moses in the Old Testament, of people who lived by faith. Persevering or enduring to their end of the days. And then here's the important part here that I want you to remember. Even though they had not seen what God had promised. See, they had not seen, it had not come to fulfillment in their lifetime, and yet they lived their lives as if it was a certainty. When you're reading about these Old Testament patriarchs, they had no idea. They knew the Messiah was coming, but they had no idea that the Messiah, right, that God would put on flesh and would come and redeem humanity for all those who put their faith and trust in him. All they knew was the promises of God. They did not know. Paul says it was a mystery to them. 
In other words, it had not been unveiled yet. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and everything that follows in this chapter is directly connected to these verses, verse 39 and verse 38. He's going to give you illustration after illustration of those who had faith to the persevering of the soul or the enduring of the soul. But I want you to note this. He's also simultaneously given an exhortation for us to exercise that faith today. He's not just pointing to a bunch of people back, you know, 2,000 years ago and saying, hey, these folks did it, or later, 5,000 years ago, hey, these folks did it. He's saying, what they did, you can do also, and even more so, because more of God's revelation has actually happened in your lifetime than what has ever happened in theirs. You actually are armed with more knowledge. You're on this side of the cross. They had to exercise faith on that side of the cross. The cross hadn't even happened yet. They were looking forward to the cross. You're looking back on it. You know these things have already transpired. They didn't even know that. But he said the same principles apply. All right, well, that's my introduction to the introduction of Hebrews chapter 11. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll do a little background information and unpack these here. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this time that we can spend in your word. Lord, thank you for Hebrews chapter 11, this great hall of faith. And Lord, the marvelous examples that we have. And Lord, we know that you've given them as examples for us. For us, Lord, to learn and to take the truth of your word and the principles that they applied in their life so that we may also live a life that brings you honor and glory. So help us, Lord, to not just be hearers of the word this morning, to not just hear these great testimonies of of this tremendous faith that these individuals have, and then not be doers of it. Help us to be a people who not only hear but do. For your honor and your glory, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now you're going to recall that throughout this whole exposition of Hebrews, the overall theme of this book is what? Christ is better. Thank you very much. I thought we're going to have to start all over again in chapter 1 there for a minute. Not only is Christ better than the angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua, better than Aaron, better than all the Levitical priests, he also ushers in a better covenant with a better sacrifice as a better high priest. Four times now the author has warned them against turning away from their profession of faith and returning to that old covenant with the old ceremonies and the old rituals and the old sacrifices. But some are doing just that, and the reason they're doing that is because they're encountering hardships in their lives, specifically persecution. But they're going through a difficult time in their life, and they're thinking, you know, it would just be easier to go back to the things I know, because there I can see a priest, and I can see the offering he he, he, uh He gives, and I know that he gave the offering. I see it burnt up on the altar, and I I know there's a holy of holies, and I I walk past the temple every day, so I know those things are there. It'd just be a lot easier to go back to that than it is to put my faith in something that I can't even see. Put my faith in an invisible God who has made promises to me of things I do not yet, are not yet able to see. 
And so it would just be a whole lot easier for me, because that's the way I live my whole life, is I get to see a priest all dressed out in a certain way, and he does certain things, just like God said he would, and he puts a real animal and you know a real sacrifice on a real fire, and I see it burn up, and I know my sacrifice to God was pleasing. I see that all the time. But what you're telling me is that there's a great high priest who's seated at the right hand of God, and that I have the Holy Spirit which is invisible to me. I have this Holy Spirit, and that the promises that God made are actually being realized already. For example, I have access to God now already. That's what you're telling me. But before, that only happened once a year, and the high priest is the one who went in. So everything you're asking me to believe are things I cannot see. So they're struggling. And so again, he's encouraging them to remain steadfast and to endure through these difficult times. But because, now listen, they, the law and the old covenant has been so convoluted, so abrogated, as well as the entire sacrificial system, that they have forgotten about grace. And they have embraced works as their means to be reconciled with God. And even though they've embraced the gospel through faith, they're still struggling with this idea of salvation and sanctification by grace through faith. They're struggling with that idea. Can't I just make a sacrifice? I mean, that was just so much easier. But you're telling me that I'm saved by grace, which I cannot see, by faith, which I cannot see, and that I have eternal security, which I hope, but I still can't see it. I mean, there weren't any sacrifices to make. There weren't any particular feasts to observe. There weren't any ritual washings to go through. There weren't any ceremonial washings of purification. There was no circumcision. There was no memorization of the law. How then were they supposed to come into this new covenant? I mean, if you can't count on your works, how are you going to be reconciled with God? And that's what verse 38 told us, right? The righteous or the righteous one will live how? By faith. By faith. Now this not, shouldn't have been a new idea to them because God has always redeemed men by faith. In fact, there's nothing more offensive to God than people who think they earned their way to heaven. The people that declare their own way, their own means to heaven, and then think, you know, if I just do enough good works, or let me just phrase it to the way you've probably heard it before. I know a whole bunch of people that are a lot worse than me. And so I must be in because I could, I mean, just give me a couple minutes, I could rattle off a whole bunch of people that are worse than me. They're not in, but I'm in. Where does the line of salvation start? It always starts right behind me, right? I am now the standard bearer of all righteousness with that attitude. When Jesus died on the cross, the last words he said is, it is Finished. That means there's nothing more to do. No man, no man is ever redeemed by works, no matter how good you think you are. God has never justified a single man, woman, or child on the basis of their works. Salvation has always been by grace, through faith, not works. Works are the evidence of your salvation. Righteous works are the outpouring of a transformed life. 
But if you're trying to manufacture works so you think you can get into heaven, that's called self-righteousness. And God is very clear how repugnant that is to God. That you would deem upon yourself to determine your own way of salvation, bypassing the sacrifice of his son, and determining all by your lonesome that my way is equal to your way, God. Can't imagine why he would be offended by that. So these true believers and these professing believers are coming to the realization now that their salvation and the life they live after salvation, called sanctification, is not based on works but on faith. And that the thing that the writer of Hebrews wants them to see about faith is that genuine faith is the kind that keeps believing in things that have only been promised and not yet realized. It does not cease to function or be real just because there's no visible or even tangible reality present to confirm it. In the midst of their hardship and their persecution, the readers of this letter needed to have that kind of faith. They needed to have biblical faith. They needed to have true faith. They needed to have enduring faith. So that's the purpose behind the writing of Hebrews, defining as he has, to help his readers to hang in on these difficult times by urging them to keep believing, keep enduring, keep persevering. How? By faith. So look at the first point in your outline here this morning. Faith is a confident assurance and a conviction of the unseen. Faith is a confident assurance and a conviction of the unseen. So our passage today, specifically in verses 1 through 3, and then again verse 6, come as close to as any passage in all the entire New Testament to give us a definition of faith. But it's not really a definition, it's more of a description of faith. If we're going to give a really fuller definition of saving faith, we'd want to include that faith is not just a knowledge of the truth. It is more than just a knowledge of the truth. It's also a firm embracing of that truth. Having or hearing the gospel and saying, okay, that makes sense to me, is not saving faith. You can't come to Christ just by thinking your way to God. There has to be more to it than that. It's not just a head knowledge that you just make this conscious decision and that's it. It's more than that. You have the knowledge of the truth, but then you must also embrace the truth. Faith is more than, a simply, than simply a cognitive knowledge or a thinking. It includes a willing embracing of the truth. And then there's an aspect of the personal trust of God. All three of those aspects are involved in saving faith. I have to have the knowledge of the truth. I have to embrace that truth. And then I have to trust in the God who gave me that truth. Those three aspects. So look more closely here at this description of enduring things. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Let's stop right there. Faith is not merely a hope that something good might happen tomorrow. It is a firm certainty in the future. That word translated assurance in, in the Greek is upostasis. 
And uh, it's really two words put together. Upo means to stand under, and stasis means to stand. So upo is under, stasis is to stand. So you stand under. In other words, it's describing a foundation for you. Uh, just, uh, what's the foundation of your faith? It's the assurance, right? That word translated assurance there uh, is also translated confidence. Confidence in 2 Corinthians 9, 4, and in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 17, and in Hebrews 3, 14, it's, it's translated confidence. It's the assurance of things hoped for. And it is, in a sense, really looking at things of the future. God said to me in his word, or through his word, this is what the future holds. That whosoever believes in him shall have eternal life. That is the knowledge of the truth. Then I have to embrace that truth and say, I believe that that's true. And I, then I have to have a personal trust in the God who gave me that truth. I have to believe he is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. Those three aspects, again. So faith is the, is the assurance of, him, of things hoped for. It's a confident assurance that we shall one day possess the things for which today we can only hope. That does not mean the gospel is true simply because we believe it. Rather, the reality of what we hope for is confirmed for us in our experience when we live by faith in God's promises. Faith is being certain. Here's a, here's a faith is being certain of what we don't see, but we're just as convinced as if we can see it. It is a means of proving or testing invisible realities such as the existence of God, his faithfulness to his word, and his control over our world and its affairs. But that brings us to the second point. If faith is the confident assurance of things that are going to happen, the other part of this description of saving faith is the conviction of things not seen. This is the unseen quality about faith. For example, you don't use your faith when you use your senses. If somebody comes up and taps me on the shoulder, I do not have to use my faith to know that somebody is there behind me, right? Because my senses tell me, right, I feel it, or perhaps they even say something to tap me on the shoulder, hey, Pastor Ron. I don't have to use my faith to know that somebody's there, right? I can hear them, I can feel them, right? So. Once you have seen, it's pretty easy to believe, right? As I turn around, oh, lo and behold, there's somebody there. But true faith is believing without seeing. It is the conviction of things not seen. It is living on the basis of that conviction. And that's going to be the message here throughout the entire chapter. True believers believe God to the point that they live their lives banking on the promises of God. They live their lives. They have the conviction. That's what we're talking about today. So if we have the confident assurance of things that are going to happen in the future, but we live today with the conviction that they are true. Let me give you an example of this. Keep your place in Hebrews and go to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. 
Now we're all familiar with this, with when Christ appears to his disciples. And Thomas isn't there. Look at verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, What? Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. In other words, I don't know what you guys were doing while I was gone, but unless I see it personally, I will not believe. Verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and this time Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, and the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst. And he said, Shalom, or peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and my hands, and see my hands. And reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? That's a question. Do you now believe, Thomas, now that you've seen? Blessed are those that did not see and yet believed. So again, saving faith, we would include not just a knowledge of the truth, it's not just believing the things that you see. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, if Jesus is real, I, you know, why don't you just come into this room and write on the wall right here and demonstrate to me that he's real? Or I'm looking for a sign that Jesus is real, and then I'll believe. But true faith, true believing, true faith, true biblical faith is a belief in the things unseen. It is living your life with the conviction that they are true. So it includes not just a knowledge of the truth, but a firm embracing of that truth and then a trust in who God is and what he says. Now we can relate to these three aspects of faith in our own experiences, can't we? Many of you have gone through a time when you've doubted certain aspects of the truth revealed in God's word along your journey. Let me give you an example of just that. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now this is uh, my favorite verse to start with in counseling, in biblical counseling. Okay? And there's a reason. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation or trial, same word in the Greek, no temptation or trial has overtaken you, but such is common to man. In other words, you may feel that what you're going through is unique to you, and that's a reason why you're falling away from God or not trusting in God. But God says, sorry, but what you're going through is what humans have been going through since the beginning that the temptation you're facing is not any different. There's nothing unique about your temptation that exempts you from my grace and your faith. But God is faithful. Oh, here's another part. 
Is he faithful when I have to go through a difficult time in my life? Is he still there? Does he even hear me? Why isn't he taking this away? Why won't he change that scenario for me? Doesn't he know how crazy my spouse drives me? Why can't God just change them? Where's the faithful God there? Third aspect. Who will not allow you to be tempted or go through a trial, if you will, beyond what you are able. Lord, I, I feel like I'm already at the end of my wits. I'm all, I don't know what to do. I don't have any more strength. But your word tells me that you're not going to give me more than I can handle. But it sure seems like this is an awful lot to handle. Lastly, but with that temptation or with that trial, he'll provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Now, let's just put this together. Think of this verse. Many of you go out through a time when you doubted certain aspects of the truth revealed in God's word along the journey of faith. But can you remember how those struggles robbed you of the sense of assurance that you have in your Christian life? If I start to doubt that, that my temptation or my trial is not common, if I start to doubt that God is not faithful, if I start to doubt that he is giving more, me more than what I can handle and he will not provide a way out, then I lose the assurance of my testimony and my faith in Christ. It robs me of knowing that God is in control and that God is using this for good. It robs me of the other promises of God. But then the Lord brought you through that trial. And you saw the assurance come back with the kind of strength that you had experienced previously. And you look back at it and go, I don't know how I got through that. But God was right. He is faithful. He did give me enough. In other words, I had enough. I was able to handle it. And he did provide a way out. There are other times when you have known something and you know it so well, perhaps you could even teach a lesson on it or you've shared it with others. And you'd say, oh, I know that's true. But you don't really embrace the truth yourself. You're really good about telling others to do that. For example, God will not give you more than you can handle. He'll always provide a way out. But then something happens in your life and you grumble. Because you haven't embraced that truth yourself. You understand it here, but you haven't embraced it here and believe it. And then finally... And, you know, in the midst of a crisis that got allowed into your life, you suddenly realize the very same truth that you've been teaching others about, that you never really have understood it before, and suddenly you embrace that truth, and you're like, hallelujah, that's true. Let me show you what God just did in my life. Then there have been those experiences in which your personal trust in God has grown as you truly believed and trusted that God wasn't just some abstract thought, but the one true God of heaven and earth. And for some of you, for most of us here, my friends, it's when you're broken. It's when you're at the bottom of the valley. It's when it hurts to breathe. It's so painful in your life. When you've been crushed and broken by others. When your health has deteriorated. When you've lost somebody that you love dearly. 
When you get to that point, you are out of resources yourself. You and I have a shallow resource of strength. It is only through him. And when we cling to the knowledge of his truth, and when we embrace that truth as real, and then when we put our trust in God, that he is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do, that you make it through that trial, and then you look back and go, why was I trying to do this myself? Why was I doubting who God is? I believe. I have faith in God. George Mueller was a man who made God's promises real by faith. He proved in a very visible way the reality of the invisible God. He literally gave away all of his money, all of his possessions, and by faith found in an orphanage in Bristol, England. Eventually, that orphanage grew to 2,000 children who needed food, clothing, and shelter every day. Now, Mueller had no savings account, and he refused to make the needs of the ministry known, even to potential donors. Why? Because he wanted to prove to the world that there is a reality in dealing with the living God. And he saw thousands of specific answers to prayer, which he carefully recorded and later published. And here's what he wrote. It is the very time for faith to work when sight ceases. When you can't see it, touch it, feel it. That's when faith kicks in. The greater the difficulties, listen to what Mueller wrote, the easier for faith. The greater the difficulties, the easier for faith. As long as there remain certain natural realities, faith does not manifest itself as easily, if I may say so, as it does when all known natural realities fail. Your faith is at its greatest when everything around you that you're counting on collapses. When you don't have control. That's when your faith is the strongest. True Bible faith is confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances and consequences. And this faith operates quite simply. God speaks through his word. As we read his word, his spirit speaks with our spirit. We hear him through his word, not literally, but uh, uh Experientially, we trust his word and act on it no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what the consequences may be. And the circumstances may be impossible and the consequences frightening and unknown, but we obey God's word just the same and believe him and do what is right and what is best according to his world, according to his word. And the unsaved world does not understand true biblical faith because it sees so little faith in action in the church today, my friends. The world fails to realize that faith is only as good as its object. And the object of our faith is not faith itself. It is Almighty God. That is the object of our faith. Faith is not a feeling that we manufacture. It is our response to what God has revealed in his word as we embrace it in truth and put our personal trust in the living God. That's what faith is. Point number two. got to move along here. True believers have a testimony of living out their faith. Look at verse 2 in Hebrews chapter 11. 
He says, for it, for by it, the men of old gained approval. True believers have a testimony of living out their faith. So the reference here to the old men is literally the elders in the original text. But it refers to the believers of the Old Testament, more specifically to the Jewish forefathers, who were both spiritually as well as physically uh, related to those they're addressing. So at first glance, as you read that verse, you might be inclined to think that this is saying that the Old Testament believers found approval in the eyes of God by means of their faith. However, that's not what's being described. The phrase gained approval is an unfortunate translation. It really should say, they gave witness. Or I liked uh, Brandon's version, actually. Uh, it was very close to what it really means. Their lives were authenticated would be a better understanding of that text. The idea here is that the actions of the old saints bore witness of their faith in God. And here's the principle. True believers have a testimony of living out their faith. These saints of old obtained a testimony in the sense that their lives bore out the fact that the unseen God was the one in whom they trusted. They lived by faith. You'll notice that these men of old gained approval or gave witness not for their faith as though they earned it, but by their faith as they demonstrated it. Faith itself, as you know, a lot of people think faith is what saves you. That the faith, just the faith, is what saves you. So they have faith in faith. But my friends, Jesus Christ is who saves you. Faith is the means by which you believe the truth that Christ saved you by grace through faith. So we don't want to place a faith in a position of being more than what it is because what happens is is that people have faith in faith. They make faith the object of their faith. Does that make sense to you? I'm getting confused myself. All right. Instead of in God is the object of their faith, they have faith in faith themselves. When that happens, then you get things like the word of faith movement, where all I got to do is have enough faith and God will bless me with tons of riches. Now, I just have enough faith, God will take away every trial in my life. If I just have enough faith, I just have That's faith in faith. Faith in God says, God is sovereign over all things in this world. And I put my faith, I embrace the truth as he has revealed himself in his word. I gain that knowledge. I embrace that truth. And then I trust in the one who gave me the message. Now, before our writer gets into specific people, which he begins in chapter 4, he wants to give you one more example of what living out that faith looks like. And that brings us to point number 3 in verse 3. By faith... We understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Okay. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth. Why do we believe such a thing? It is not because there were any eyewitnesses here. Were any of you here at the creation of the world? Mm -hmm. Any of you eyewitnesses? Me either. I am old, but not that old. Mm -hmm. It is a matter of believing that which we have not seen. My friends, both believers and unbelievers have the same evidence. They have a universe and a planet we call Earth on which we live. One looks at the evidence and says that it came from nothing, that matter created itself, and then it turned into this. 
The other looks at it, concludes God created it just as he said. Which one is the true reality? Which one is the true reality? The Christian admits he has faith that God created the universe, and the evidence would support it as all things appear abruptly, even in the fossil record, incidentally. All of a sudden, things appear. It didn't happen gradually. All of a sudden, there is life at, uh, across, uh, across the spectrum. The unbeliever will not admit it takes faith to believe this position that matter that you have to believe that matter creates itself. Now, we might wonder why God would introduce this issue of creation at this point. Why does he, why does his, what does his creation have to do with the faith of those who are about to follow in the rest of this chapter? Why creation now? It's because the author of Hebrews wants to remind them that they believe that God is responsible not only for the physical universe, but the spiritual realm as well. Genesis tells us that the world was framed by God's word. Matter of fact, when he starts to give you the hall of faith, he's going to go all the way back to Genesis. He's going to go right back to the beginning and walk you through it. But here's the thing. We only know that because God told us in his word that that's what happened. He, we're utterly dependent upon God for this knowledge. And again, there were no human eyewitnesses to creation. And yet... When God revealed that to us in his word, as he did in Genesis, our response was one of faith. But again, there were no eyewitnesses. Now, everybody here has a certain measure of faith. You, 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 you exercised faith when you drove here to church today. You exercised faith that when you pressed on that long rectangular pedal that your car would go. You put in gear. You, you exercised faith that when you put the... Uh, yeah, I don't what shape is that? Is that more rectangular? Anyway, teachers, help me out. When you pressed on the brake, that your car would stop. You hurled yourself along with a thin uh, cotton thread across you, and you said, hey, this will stop me as I hurl this 4,000 piece of machinery at 45 miles an hour. You exercise faith. You exercise faith that when you walked into this church that the floor would not give way, nor would the pew, that we would have service at a regular time. You exercise faith every day. You cannot survive in this world without exercising faith. Most people believe there is someone who is bigger than them or there's something bigger than them who made the heavens and the earth. But that's not saving faith and that's not enduring faith. That's only the first step towards faith, which is described in this chapter. If you believe God exists, you do well, Scripture tells us. But you're in the company of the devil and his demons because they also believe that God exists. They don't have saving faith, and they don't have enduring faith. There's a deeper, more abiding faith to which we are called. The author doesn't want us to have this temporary, flimsy faith that falls back to destruction. He wants us to have a faith that endures trial to the persevering, the preserving of the soul. That faith takes the future promises of God and lives them out in the present, even though can't see them. It proves the reality of the unseen world by the way you live your lives. It gains a powerful testimony in the eyes of God. It understands that the origin of everything that we believe in are the things that we can't see. Such faith. We're going to see numerous examples of that in Hebrews chapter 11. Chapter 11. Is very down-to-earth and practical, and it has sustained the people of God through thousands and thousands of years in every sort of difficulty. 
And it will sustain you in the trials you're facing right now as well. Jonathan Edwards said in his final words, If you trust in God, you do not need to fear. Now, beloved, many of you here are going through trials. Some of you are going through physical trials. Some of you are going through relationship trials. Some of you are going through spiritual trials, emotional trials. But the faith that's described in the Word of God is the faith that will sustain you through those trials. It's not a faith in faith. It's a faith in what God has revealed to us in His Word. It's embracing that truth as real and then living that faith out every day of your life. That is your powerful testimony. And then it is a personal trust in the God who is, that He is who He says He is, that He has done what He says He has done and will do what He says He will do in the future. And as we go through this chapter and the rest of this month, you're going to see example after example after example of people who exhibited this kind of faith. And guess what? That faith is still available to us today. Amen? I'm going to have the men come forward.